to Psalm 130. Uh, as I heard the song, uh, Give Us Christian Homes, it's, it's such a great song. I feel like it needs a, a better like tune, you know, like, sometimes more uplifting. But uh, that there's a song, a verse in there about where the Bible and the old hymns are sung or something. And uh, every time I try to sing in my house, which is all the time. Like, I'm a very sing-songy guy. And uh, my, my, especially James Allen, he'll say, he'll yell at me to stop. He'll just say, st- like, I'm, and it's not, I barely get a word. Like, I could say the song, song that starts with, like, oh, you know, he's like, right then, out three rooms away, yells at me. I can hear him yelling, stop. So apparently my voice is, like, nails on a chalkboard to my children, but uh, they still get it. They can't stop it. It's still coming. Um, <clears throat> so would you stand... As I read Psalm 130. Hear the word of God. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have disclose yourself that we might know you. Lord, if it were not for your communication to us in your word, illuminated by the power of the Spirit, God, we would not know you. We would not know you fully. We would not know your son, Jesus. We would not know the fullness of the gospel and the hope we have in dark days. We, we would not know what to do with this world. And yet, God, you have yielded yourself here that we might know you, that you might be known by us, and that we might walk with you in new relationship. So, Lord, help us to see and to hear and to obey, to believe and to obey. And, Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So, Lord, speak to us. Oh, God, how we need to hear. Would you speak? Father in heaven, speak. We pray this as children who are listening in Christ's name. Amen. In the book of Judges you find one of the most, I think, probably the most formidable woman uh, probably in the Bible, in, in Deborah, and the whole episode there with J.L., who, uh, if, you have, if you don't know this part of Judges, I'm going to, spoiler alert, uh, but she drives a tent peg through a dude's head. It's intense in there. Not Deborah, but J.L. Anyways. Uh, but Deborah is a judge and who helps deliver, God, leads God's people 
to victory, and she is described there in the book of Judges as a mother in Israel. As a mother in Israel. And uh, this week, that verse popped into my head over and over again, uh, that we've lost a mother in Israel, in Miss Francis. Um, And so in light of that, in the sense that not only has her family lost a mother and a grandmother and a great-grandmother, but we've lost and we grieve. And I told, I told Sarah Beth yesterday, this is going to be a very, uh, you know, like if you're, you remember when you were in school and some of you just take a minute, get there, remember back. Uh, and, and you, uh, and they, if you, you know, anyways, they had, you have a spiral notebook, right? Spiral notebook. And a lot of them have perforated edges, right? A perforated edge and that you had to kind of like hold right next to the spiral to kind of make it a clean tear. Well, this sermon is like you yanked it out of the book, and so it's kind of have rough edges, okay? It's been quite a week on my end of things, so just full disclosure. Uh, So I told Sarah Beth yesterday that I wish, and I finally was able to articulate something I've been experiencing for years, uh, is that I wish somebody, some pastor, uh, some book, some class in seminary or college or anywhere would have helped me work through what it means to not only minister to the grieving, but to minister to the grieving while grieving. Uh, and that's what I've been trying to do this week. Um, as many of you have, as you've circled around each other and been trying to bear up one another's burdens. And uh, it's just been hard. And so a mother in Israel. And so that's why I landed on, uh, on Psalm 130. It might seem like a strange Mother's Day uh, psalm. But for some of you who have lost your, your earthly mothers, this isn't so strange. Um, this day is, uh, is joyful and painful. Or some of you who have lost not only your own mothers, but you've lost the mother of your children. You've lost your wife and you've seen people um, bereft of their mother. Uh, and so that's, that's why I landed here. Um, I think by God's grace, I... Um, anyway, so in Psalm 130... This is a grouping of what are called songs of ascent. Uh, And so maybe your Bible has that in the title. It says a song of ascent. And that simply means uh, it's from like mid 120s. So like 124. No, I take it back from the anyways, from 120 through like 134. uh, It has a song of ascent. And these were songs that were sung by Israel as they were ascending up to Jerusalem during the festival. So they would be as they would be all of these pilgrims coming into Jerusalem and they'd be you kind of come down into a valley and you go up to Mount Zion. You go up to where Jerusalem is kind of perched on this hill. And so they're called songs of ascent. So as you're coming up the hill, you're singing these songs and you would think that they would sound like modern uh, this isn't a knock necessarily. It is kind of a knock. It is a little knock. Uh, it would sound like what you would find on like Caleb, where it's all like bopper and happy and all. There's no, you can never ever be sad, right? It's all, it's perpetual happiness. Uh, that, uh, that, but they're not like that. They're not like that. They're, you know, out of the depths I cry to you. Could you imagine a mass of people gathering in the parking lot after they've experienced some difficulty and some trial, and they're entering into the house of God to worship, and they're singing, 
Out of the depths I cry to you. Our culture, our churches don't know very much about that kind of thing. But the songs of ascent are, are like that. Out of the depths I cry to you. 129, greatly they have afflicted me from youth. Anyway, so they're, 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 they're happy and they're sad. They're full of life. And I find great hope in this. In that the Psalms, as some great commentator said somewhere or another, uh, that they cover the whole gamut of the human emotion. That they're, they're a unique book of the Bible and that the whole, all of human emotion is, um, is instilled in inspired speech back to God. It's not just God talking to us, but it is, it is the people of God through every season, through every season of life and through every season of human emotion articulating inspired speech back to God. What do I say when my heart is rent? Let me go to the Psalms. What do I say when I'm overwhelmed with joy? Let me go to the Psalms. And there is this, the whole book of the Psalms is a license to go to God as you are. Go to God with your joy. Go to God with your apathy. Go to God with your tears. Go to God with your anger. Go to God. And they help you articulate that. That there's no emotional condition, no affectional condition that excludes you from fellowship with God. Let me say that again because that was... There's, no, there's nothing that you're feeling. There's nothing on your level of affections that you're enduring or, or undergoing that prevents you from coming into the presence of God. You never have to say, this is where my heart is, is here. My heart is here. My heart is in the valley or my heart is struggling with anger or my heart is struggling with confusion or despondency or whatever is going on in this world. But I feel like I've got to put this face on in prayer. Or when I go to church, we don't, we don't do that part. But I'm just, that's for other churches, other Christians, other places. We go to church, put our face on. I'm glad some of y'all know that's funny. It's a joke, right? Uh, but that's what we do. We feel like I can't, I can't show. I can't show that I'm, I'm actually rent inside. I'm torn up. I'm struggling. And you need to know on this Mother's Day that wherever you are in the comp, which were complex bundles of things, like what, whatever you're enduring, whatever you're experiencing, Come to God. The psalmist is in the midst of great affliction or suffering. We, don't, we have no context as to what's happening in the psalmist's life here. We don't know what the, what, why he's in the depths. He doesn't, we don't know what the affliction or the suffering is. We just know that he's in the depths. He's in deep water. The, there's almost an image here of like Jonah sinking down to the bottom of the earth. He's under submerged in difficulty. And even then, he is going to God. You know, his prayer doesn't start here. Oh, great and magnanimous, wonderful God of creator of all things. You're so, you know, it's like you sure pray like that. Start with adoration, but be real. Because I just FYI, God knows your heart better than you do. He already knows what you're saying in your, to yourself. He already knows what you're, that you're happy, sad, mad, glad, whatever. He knows. And the invitation of the Psalms 
is saying you don't have to be in that space by yourself. That God says, I'm com- I want to come into your... What Jesus says, the Father and I will come and make our abode in you, with you. We'll come and make our home in you by the Holy Spirit. That we'll come and live with you. And so that even our affections and emotions can be sanctified by the power of God. And that even seasons in the valley of the shadow of death, even seasons submerged in the depths, can serve God's purposes in our lives. And I would argue that even those seasons are the most, make you the most malleable. I'm going to define that word. Some of you are like, I don't know what that means. So if say, for instance, you're trying to work with steel or glass. I had a, I had a guy I knew in seminary that that was his hobby. He, he blew, blown, he blew, blew, blew glass. I guess he, he blows glass, whatever the proper verb is there. Uh, he blows glass. He heats it up. But in order to make the glass malleable where it's shapeable, what has to happen to it? It gets super hot. It goes into the furnace and it comes out and they have that tube and they do the spinny thing and whatever looks like they're playing a flute. But that's, that's how it happens. Say if, maybe if, if you're a man that seems too ornate, right? Maybe you're like a blacksmith. You're, you know, you're a hammer. You're a hatchet or, a, you know, you want to be all masculine, okay? So you go into the, fur, uh, the furnace or the forge and they, they bring it out and it's, it's glowing red and the blacksmith takes a hammer to it. None of that, if you were a piece of metal, seems like it would be very comfortable. I'm going to get super hot, and then I'm going to be submitted to the pounding hammer of the blacksmith. And yet, through suffering and affliction, this is how God shapes us. Now, the Christian life is not all suffering and affliction. But somebody's lying to you if they tell you it doesn't involve suffering and affliction. Because it was through suffering and affliction that Jesus was perfected, the writer of Hebrews says. That he was equipped to become our high priest. And if that's true for the sinless Son of God, what must suffering mean for us? Where we are reminded that this world is not our home. Where we're, we're reminded that we're beset with darkness all around us. That, that even ourselves, one day we will lie down. In death, unless the Lord comes beforehand. That all of these things serve God's good in your life. Let me say it again. When you go through the fire, you go through the water, you go through the ice storm, whatever, that it serves God's good for you. You remember the, the promise we all hang our hats on in Romans eight twenty eight. God works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Amen. Amen. Right. He works all things for the good. The very next. You want to know what the good is? It's the very next verse. It's not your comfort. It's not your affluence. It's not your acclaim or your fame. Verse 829, you've been predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ. That God's good for you, Christian, isn't ease in this world. It's that you would be forged out of death into life to look like Jesus. So that the world will see 
so that the world will see. So the psalmist cries, and this is the, out of the depths I cry to you, this is the, the language of prayer in the Old Testament. At the end of Genesis chapter 4, when people began to pray, they, in those days they began to cry out or call out to the name of the Lord. That's the same word. When Abraham built altars and he cried out to God in prayer, same word. So this is the language of prayer. So where we ought to move is in the midst of grief or the midst of despair or the midst of difficulty, suffering, affliction, the sourness of this life. It ought to not drive us away from God, but it must drive us to God in prayer. That prayer becomes, as Jonathan Edwards says, the very breath that we breathe. Prayer ought to be our breath, inhaling, exhaling the presence of God. But he cries out, hear my voice. But notice something that your English Bible makes it kind of wonky to see. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps. O Lord, L-O-R-D, little caps, or little, lower, small case, whatever, lower case. Uh, that he's saying, this is the... Um, Out of of the depths depths I cry to you, O Yahweh, calls out God's name. And then he says, O Lord, that means Adonai, that you're my Lord. That simultaneously he's recognizing that this is the sovereign covenant keeping God of Israel, the maker of heavens and earth, and he is my God. He is accounting that he's the God of creation who has a definite existence. This isn't just a general generality, some belief in some higher being. But this, this is for us, this, as we would articulate it, this is the triune God of the Bible. And then the psalmist says, Oh Lord, you are my Lord. You are my Adonai. In prayer, there is an acknowledgement that God is God and that I am submitted to Him. I don't, I don't understand your hand. I don't understand your hand this week. But you're my God. I know that you have made promises and that you keep your promises. I know that you delivered a people out of Egypt through the Red Sea and you sustained a bunch of knuckleheads in the wilderness. And I know that you sent your only son to die for ruined sinners like me that I might be brought to God. I know that you keep your promises. And so I call out for mercy. I call out for grace. And so in the context of this affliction, the, the psalmist moves in verses 3 and 4 into a, and it, seem, it might seem like a hard shift of gear. But every affliction and every suffering, whether it's something that we bring on ourselves or something that we simply suffer ourselves, ought to remind us. It ought to remind us that, that it reminds us of God's wrath and of God's grace. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? There are no innocent sufferers in this world. That might be the most difficult pill you swallow today. You might refuse it, right? You could leave your medicine on the table. It's fine. But if there are none righteous, no, not one then every instance of suffering is a reminder that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Hear what I'm I'm not saying. It reminds us, one, of our 
I am saying it reminds us of our sin. It reminds us that we live in a fallen world. I am not saying that every instance of affliction or suffering in your life is connected to some particular sin in your life. That's not, I'm not saying that. So sometimes you suffer innocently in the sense that, you know, Job, Job didn't do anything wrong. Okay. So I'm not, I'm not making this one-to-one, but it is a reminder that I am beset by sin and that I live in a world beset by sin. And if God were to hold accounts to bear, if God were to call, call in our debt for our sin, no one could stand before him. Do you remember what Jesus says in Luke chapter 13? Luke chapter 13, um, you should remember this. I preached it three years ago. You should have that in your back pocket. Remember, or whatever it was, four years ago. Lord knows how long ago it was. Um, that is a big, uh, Luke 13, 1 and 2-ish. That they, these people come to him and they say, hey, Jesus, uh, he already tells them, he, they, they tell him of how Pilate mixed the blood of the Galileans with their sacrifice. So, so Pilate crushes a group of uh, of, of, of Galileans who are sacrificing. And then he tells another story of a tower that fell in Siloam. And he says to them who are there, he says, repent or you will likewise perish. That in those two stories, you had those who suffered innocently, not as innocents, but they suffered innocently, and those who had suffered because of their rebellion. And both of them were examples that we need to repent so that when you see, when you see difficulty in this world and you experience suffering in this world, or you experience grief in this world, it must remind us that God holds account for sin. And if he were to call in that account today, no one could stand before him. And all we deserve is eternal judgment from him. Rightly, justly, and God could do that today justly. But he has sent his son. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So affliction serves to remind us of God's wrath and grace, leading us to humility and worship. That if we're going to be in the context of prayer. And you're suffering and you you might be angry, you might have your, your you might be like a razorback all bucked up. When you come into prayer, there has to be. There has to be your God, I'm not. There has to be God, I might not understand. I'm even struggling not to be angry with this. But your God, there has to be a humility when you come before God. Because if he should mark iniquities, who could stand? if If he would count our sins, who could stand? But with him there is forgiveness. He takes away sin and brings life that he extends not just wrath, right? He doesn't just extend wrath to sin, but he extends grace to sinners. Saying, if you would turn, if you would repent, if you would come to Christ, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Forgiveness is meant, and it is only of grace, and it's meant to drive us towards worship. And remember, all of this is in the depths of affliction. Grace births the fear of God and hopeful waiting. The rest of this psalm is in those two arenas, right? Affliction and then the grace of forgiveness. The psalmist continues in anguish 
He continues in anguish, but he also continues in grace. I have been forgiven. He is my God. The experience and endurance of suffering is transformed by God's mercy and forgiveness and restoration. I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits. There's, a, there's, a, there's almost a change of tenor in this psalm from verse, from verse 1 to verses 1 and 2 to verses 5 and 6. And the, the, the cream middle of that Oreo is the grace of God toward ruined sinners. You see, he's, he's crying out. He's saying, hear my voice. Please be attentive to me. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. Hear me, hear me, hear me. I am dust. I am a sinner. God has forgiven me. He's promised to look after me. He's promised to be my shepherd, my good shepherd. He's promised to hold me in his hand and he will not let anyone take me from it. Jesus says in John chapter 10, I I cannot be lost because Christ has found me. I will wait for the Lord. And my soul waits. And in his word, I hope. Do you see where the psalmist begins to build the foundation? If you've ever been in intense suffering or affliction, anxiety, fear, you know, it seems like the, you're like at the beach and you're standing there in, in two inches of water and every move of the wave removes a little bit of the sand underneath your feet and you feel more and more and more unstable. And if we take our cues from our context and our circumstances, then we will be unstable people. We'll fall this way and that way forward, backward, side to side. But the psalmist says in His word, in God's word, I hope, in God's promise, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. You know what a watchman is? We don't have those these days. It's not a watchdog. It's not a whistleblower, sort of. A watchman were on the walls of the city, and they were, one, they were watching out. Watchman, you're welcome. So there's your word study of the day. Uh, that they're watching, they're watching for enemies, but they're also watching for the dawn. They're waiting for the dawn to rise. And he's saying, my soul waits for the Lord. So and the implication is, just as sure as the sun is coming up over the horizon, the Lord will come and keep his promise. Just as sure and even more so. As the world spinning in the world spinning on its axis and going around the sun and the universe holding together, just as sure as all the laws of physics will be true tomorrow as they are today, just as sure and more so, God will keep his promises. God will continue to be near the downcast. He will continue to say, precious in my sight are the death of my saints. He will continue to say, I work all things for the good of those who love me and are called according to to my, to my purpose. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. And with him there is plentiful redemption. The psalmist now turns from himself. This has been a, a, a psalmist and God conversation up to this point, And now he turns himself to the congregation of Israel. 
And for us, I'm going to say the congregation of the church. And he says, oh, church, hope in the Lord. Take your cues from God's word. What has God promised? What has God promised in this life? And what has God promised in the life to come? What has he promised? And God's promises speak a greater truth to you than your grief, mourning, suffering of this day. They speak a greater truth than what you feel and what you see and what you sense. God's truth is truer, if you will. Hope in the Lord. Why ought we to hope in God? Why ought we to hope in God? Because with the Lord, with Yahweh, the covenant-keeping, relationship-keeping God, there is steadfast love. There's, you know, this is loyal love. This is covenant-keeping. He's made a promise to His people. He's going to keep it love. Elsewhere, the psalmist says that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As high as the heavens are above the earth. How many stratospheres and outer spheres and herbospheres? I don't know. There's all these spheres. I can't remember that part of school. But uh, all these levels of physical heaven. And you were to encompass that in the world. There is no unit of measurement. You can't match. You know, how many gallons is that? How many cubic inches is that? Who knows? But God's love surpasses all of that. You look out into space and you see the blackness between the stars and the stars themselves. And God, the quantity and the quality of God's love extends beyond all of that. With him, there is steadfast love. And his is not a sentimental love. It is an active and able love. It is a love that is most demonstrated to you, not just in your own personal life. Not just in the world around you, but scripture says that God demonstrates his love in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Where do you see the love of God? You see the only innocent man ever in history suffering for you. Here's the love of God. So that you might be free. That you might be forgiven. And being free and forgiven, you may now wait on the Lord. With hope and expectancy and even through tears. We wait on the Lord because he has steadfast love and also with him there is plentiful redemption. Not only does he forgive us our sins negatively, he doesn't doesn't just make our slate clean so that we can go back into the world and fill it up with muck and mire and sin again. But then he redeems us. He takes us from the domain of darkness and he transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son. With him, there is redemption. Paul says to the Ephesians, in him, in Christ, we have redemption by his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. He buys us back from the forces that would enslave us. He buys us back from sin and Satan, the world, flesh, and he buys us back that we might be his. We have been bought with a price. We are not our own. And we can wait on the Lord. As his chosen, treasured people. Why else ought we to hope in the Lord? He has steadfast love. There is plentiful redemption with him. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. If you're a highlighter, 
underliner, circler, note taker in your Bible, that word all there. There is not an iniquity left in your life that is not covered by the blood of Jesus. There is not a sin in your life that is not covered by the blood of Jesus when you come to him. He doesn't just forgive us of these, this group of really bad ones over here and leave us to ourselves over here. But the writer of Hebrews says that he is able to save to the uttermost. To the utmost. He delivers us from all our iniquities. And if he delivers us from all of our iniquities, then we have hope to wait on the Lord. That when we breathe our last, when we breathe our last, and we finally stand before Jesus, stand before God, our only hope, our only boast, will be Christ, His blood, and His righteousness, because He redeems us from all of our sin. Either Jesus redeems you from all your sin, or He is not your Redeemer at all. So find hope today, dear one. Whether it's a high day, low day, middle day, hope in the Lord. He has steadfast love, plentiful redemption, and He saves to the uttermost. So come to Christ, trust Him afresh, even in confusing times when you don't understand His hand. Trust him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. Thank you that you are good. And we can cry to you. And wherever our hearts are, we know that we are not exempted from your presence. We are not prevented or expelled because of what we're going through, but you welcome us to articulate our highs and our lows, our hopes, our dreams, our fears, our brokenness, our weeping, to lay all of those things down in the very breath of prayer. We thank you for the grace that we have received, not that we have earned forgiveness, but it is all a gift. It's all of grace that we might know you that our sins might be done away with. And when sin is removed, the sting and power of death goes with it. So Lord, we hope in the Lord. And I pray if there are some here who don't know you and they're left in the despondency of verse one and two and the depths of anguish or suffering or despair, Pray, O Lord, that by your grace they might be able to turn upward and see the welcoming arms of Christ. That everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that everyone who comes to Jesus, he will certainly not cast out. Thank you, God, that you are near to us. Have your way and lead us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.